Matthew chapter 9, if you couldn't hear me up until now. And we have been continuing to go through the book of Matthew, and we have uh, called this series through Matthew, Your Kingdom Come, as we look at what is the kingdom of God. And as we've been going through Matthew, we keep coming back to three big uh, overarching or umbrella points, if you will, in the book of Matthew. Number one, the first thing that you're going to see as you read and study through the book of Matthew, one of the themes that Matthew is so intentional about is that you see Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Number two, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Now, I don't want to just say that and move on. When I say, or as we've been saying, that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, please understand that what we mean is God's kingdom is perfectly right side up, as only a creator and Lord of all can do. When we say that God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom, what we're trying to say is that we as humans see it as upside down because it goes against everything in our sinful nature. It goes against everything that we would normally view as this is the way to do things. And I love Mark Turner a couple weeks ago brought up that God says in Isaiah that my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. So God's way of building his kingdom is different. God's way of living in his kingdom is different than how we might live in an earthly kingdom. And number three, Jesus is the answer. Matthew continually goes back to the fact that Jesus is the answer. Whatever it is that you are looking for in life, you will not truly be content or happy until you find it in Jesus. With that, we will dump into Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Now, I want to point out something in advance. I think I've mentioned this before. Matthew does not write his book chronologically. Uh, If We've been jumping between Matthew and looking at passages in Mark or in Luke. Mark and Luke are primarily written chronologically. This is what happened in this time and in this order. Matthew is very pointed in why he is telling stories when he does. And he is tying this together to continue to point back to those three main themes. So when we're reading these different miracles, understand they didn't necessarily happen in this order, but Matthew kind of points out why he's writing them in this order, which we will spend the rest of the evening discussing. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your leader eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that Jesus is the answer. Lord, we thank you so much for the miracles that we see, not only in this book, but in our life. I pray that as we come to your word this evening, that we would allow it to penetrate our hearts, penetrate our innermost deepest parts that we try to hide so that we might change because of your spirit for your glory. 
I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, understand, like I said, up to this point, we've seen all of these incredible miracles happening. These miracles that you just can't explain away. Now, there were other people at this time claiming to be the Savior. There was uh, other people going around doing things that were awesome, uh, like an illusionist would. Uh, there was uh, satanic works at hand, and, and obviously, uh, as we saw a couple weeks ago, there were de- demonic powers at hand, but Jesus was doing something that only Lord of all could do. And Derek discussed that last week. I encourage you to go back and listen to it, but they lower a man through the ceiling while he's speaking, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes say, blasphemer. And he goes, and get up and walk. And he gets up and walks, and as we talked about, so the, the miracles we mainly see Jesus doing are things that you can't make up. He didn't hire some guy, as some magicians would do, to pretend he was blind for an hour while he was sitting here, and then call him up and say, now he can see, and the guy's like, oh my goodness, I can see. He was healing people who sat outside the city gates their entire life who had no use of their legs, where the muscle atrophy would have sat in, where they would have been very noticeable that something was wrong, where they haven't been able to see their whole lives, and in an instant, they could run if they couldn't use their legs before. They could see if they couldn't see before. So the things that Jesus is doing are amazing, but to to kind of take a, a point from Derek's last week of, he said he forgives sins. Nobody can do that. Only one being can do that. And so what I'm, my, my goal this evening is that we, if we have started to take the miracle of salvation, if we have started to take the miracle of having our sins paid for and being forgiven from those sins, that we might start to see it as an incredible miracle that no other being can do. So, We'll start with point number one. Point number one, the first thing we see is Matthew's identity versus Matthew's calling. There it is. Matthew's identity versus Matthew's calling. And this truly is a battle within all of us. All of us fight this battle between what, our, what we find our identity in, what we place as an idol in our life, what we find as most important to us, versus what God wants for us. Look at verse 9 again. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. You might recognize Matthew as the writer of this book. Sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. One of the uh, Christian colleges I worked at, um, one of the courses that everybody had to take in your second year was homiletics. And homiletics is just basically teaching you how to preach. And I was over a lab of people that were learning to preach. And, there, and the hard part was is every single person had to take it, whether you felt called to speak, whether you could speak quite literally in some cases. Uh, what we had people that were very shy getting up in front of one person, let alone this many. And there was a guy, and he was absolutely hysterical, but he was also super awkward. And he had to speak, and he got up to speak, and his passage was on, um, don't store up your treasures here on 
earth where moth and vermin destroy. And he got so caught up in the part about moths, and they only had 10 minutes, 12 was their max. And then I, as the person overseeing the lab, would have to warn them when they had two minutes left, raise one hand, and then raise another hand when they had one minute left. I raised my hand when he was only about halfway through his intro. And he was just so infatuated with moths that when I raised up my hand, he was just like, oh, oh, uh, uh, let me finish talking about moths really quick. And I kind of was like, you don't, you don't have time. Jump into your main point. I tell you that story because that's how I feel talking about Matthew and his occupation and how much of his identity was wrapped up in his occupation. You see, as a Jewish man as Matthew was, Matthew um, would have been more than likely brought up in a Jewish home and pursued the things that the people around him were. And he probably hated and was, was trained to hate the government like everybody else. They hated the Roman occupiers who robbed their land of what it once could be. But not only that, you had the Herodian family, and they also made life miserable for the Jews, although they claimed to be Jews themselves. And so you were fighting two different government powers, but then also there were the religious leaders as well who also loved to heap extra laws on top of you as it was. And so he was brought up in this home, and at some point he decided to be a tax collector. The benefit of being a tax collector is you usually became quite wealthy. And so, if we had to make an assumption about Matthew, is he decided that wealth was important and he was going to chase it. But here's the problem with being a tax collector. Jews hate you. Jews hate you. Your family will hate you. They will disown you. You will not be allowed in the synagogue so any other Jewish person would be told to view you as unclean, meaning that you were cast out from society. You couldn't function alongside of the other Jews. And simply because people don't like getting cheated. I don't know if you know that or not. They don't like getting cheated out of their money. But how the tax collecting system worked, and this is what the Romans would normally do as they would occupy a country or territory, is they would say that they would collect tax collectors, but it was very ingenious because they got their own people. So somebody, let's say South Carolina becomes occupied, they're not going to bring somebody from outside of South Carolina, they're going to find people in South Carolina who are willing to abandon their friends and family because they really like money. And they get them to collect taxes because then our hatred turns towards another person from South Carolina. Not the Romans. We know the Romans are over it, but man do we hate Matthew. And there was another form of hatred, and, and this is where, if you remember the biblical story of Zacchaeus, it said Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. So a person like Zacchaeus comes along, and he would make a bid with the Roman government saying, I will collect you this much money if I can have this position. And so whoever told the Roman government how much money they could make, they would get it. They would get protection from Roman soldiers. And then somebody like Zacchaeus, now Zacchaeus operated probably closer to Jerusalem, and Matthew is up closer in the northern region of what is now Israel. And so he would hire people to sit in the booths and collect taxes. And so that's where someone like Matthew comes in. So you might not necessarily hate Zacchaeus because you don't see him, really. He's never sitting in the booth collecting taxes. But Matthew, now there's a guy we can all hate. 
Every time we would go on this very busy road that would lead from Damascus all the way down into Egypt, you would pass through Galilee or this region. And that is where Matthew sits and collects taxes. Now, sidebar, fishermen like Andrew and Peter and James and John, who Jesus calls more than likely first to be his disciples, as they would gather their fish and they would have to walk by Matthew, Matthew is then taxing them or other tax collectors. But more than likely, and that's not biblical, they knew each other. So imagine the hatred that would stem from these Jewish fishermen who already are barely making ends meet, and they keep passing by this guy who keeps taking their money. Because here's what would happen. The chief tax collector would tell the Roman government, I will make you this much money, and the Roman government would say, that's a deal. Then the Roman government would basically make it legal for the chief tax collector to add a percentage onto whatever tax he was collecting because, hey, he's got to make a living. Then the chief tax collector hires the booth tax collectors, and the booth tax collectors, hey, they need to make a living, so they will add another percentage. And oftentimes, they will add the percentage based on how you look. You drive a nice car, your tax just went up. Your car is not so great, well, I'm still going to tax you because I need money. And it was completely legal, this corruption. And tax collectors, everybody hated, so there had to be Roman soldiers near them at all times. So you hate somebody, and the more you demonstrate how much you hate them, they might tax you more, and you can't do anything about it because the Roman soldiers are more than happy to kill you. So please understand this dynamic that's happening in this situation. Now put yourself in the place again, this is just me, of James and John or Andrew and Peter, and you're walking up to the tax collector booth, and you're like, oh, there's that Matthew. Or fill in the blank. I'm sure all of you have somebody like that. Oh, man. what I I wish I could find him one time walking by himself by the Sea of Galilee. Just one time. And then Jesus goes, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew says, yep. And he gets up and he leaves everything behind. Now, that's just five of the 12 disciples. When you get into the backgrounds of all the disciples, please understand, there had to be an unbelievable animosity towards each other when you get into the story. But I want to point out this this contradiction between Matthew's life of abandoning the people that loved him for his occupation abandoning his religious beliefs, abandoning the people that he's supposed to look up to who have now labeled him unclean, and he has abandoned everything that he would have known growing up because of his pursuit of money. And he was probably wealthy, and upon making money, he realizes his friends are unbelievably limited. Nobody wants to hang out with him because he's usually cheated most of his friends out of their money. So he's got a problem because of who he finds himself to be is a problem. And it isn't going the way that he had hoped it had gone. So when we examine our own lives, are we chasing after what I call phantoms? We've imagined them to exist in our own imagination and we chase after trying to make them happy. But no matter what we do, they're not happy and they're always wanting more. We have to make more money. We have to drive a better car. We need a bigger house. We need, and we goes on and on and on, whatever it is. We chase after it. 
we just keep finding ourselves back in the same place of just wanting to fit in, just wanting to belong. And the people that we're trying to impress seem to not like us more and more. And then Jesus enters the picture. And Jesus casts out this invitation, come and follow me, and there is a decision of what happens next. Picture Matthew again. He is not only just leaving the tax collector's booth and say, hey, I'm going to go try this out and see how it goes for a little bit. You'll hire me back, right? Once you laugh being a tax collector, there was no going back. And you're entering back into a society where everyone hates you. Not only that, you are leaving the protection of the Roman soldiers behind and everyone still hates you. You have still cheated people out of their money. And Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. And he gets up and he follows him. He knows he's going to lose everything that he's worked for. He knows he no longer has the job that he's abandoned so much to get. But he found more. It is an actual picture of what Will started, talking about Chuck, who immediately in front of his whole village collected up all the idols and threw them in a fire and said, those are now worthless to me. Everything I've tried to find an answer in in my 89 years of life is now worthless when compared to following Jesus. This battle wages in all of us. If you find yourself looking for the same things that Matthew was trying to find and not finding it, please understand you are believing a lie of Satan. That those things of earth can make you happy. Point number two in verse 10. Your dining room table demonstrates who you love. Your dining room table demonstrates who you truly love. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. This also is playing into this unbelievable miracle of salvation that we see. Matthew has his sins forgiven. Matthew, who is hated by everybody, found someone who loves him unconditionally. And it seems the first thing that he does is he gathers the other people that he is now friends with, his community, if you will. Because a tax collector was only friends with two groups of people, tax collectors and sinners. They were the outcasts of the Jewish society. That's all they had were each other. And when the Bible separates them, please understand, tax collectors and sinners, it's not saying like, well, then there's tax collectors and then there's the really bad sinners. They're saying, well, there's the sinners, then there's the really bad tax collectors. The tax collectors were the upper echelon because they chose to abandon their people, not just abandon their people, but to cheat their people out of their hard-earned money. So these, these sinners, yeah, they're sinners. That's what they do. Tax collectors have purposely chosen a lifestyle this way, and now they're cheating us of our hard-earned money. They're worse. So when you see those two things uh, separated, please understand the emphasis is on tax collectors are horrible. These other people are just sinners, and they're still unclean, but tax collectors I'll kill. And what does Jesus do? He goes to them. Matthew says, you've got to come to my house. There's so many other people like me. They've got to find what only you can provide. 
and Jesus and his disciples go in and sit down with them. And in that culture and those customs, that's a really big deal. That means you are now associating yourself with this person. The neighbors are going to see you walking into their home and they're going to talk about it. Your dining room table demonstrates who you love. There's a saying that I heard a lot, I've heard a lot growing up in my house and other people's homes, especially in church culture. Raise your hand if you've heard this saying. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Here's the problem. Places I've been really emphasize, well, we still love them. They're still human beings. They're still created in God's image. But we will never talk to them. And they will never come in our house. And we will not associate ourselves with them in any way because people will see that. Thank God that is not how Jesus operates. However, we hide behind this saying a lot of times. I actually will call good friends out. And they're like, well, love the sinner, hate the sinner. Liar. I know how you treat people you love, and I know how you treat people you hate. Don't tell me you love that guy because your actions demonstrate you hate them. They'll never be welcome in your home. You're not friends with anybody who is like them. You've disassociated yourselves and possibly, and I've heard this happens, gone after them heavily on social media, lumping them into a group of other people that may not or may not be true about them. Tell me who sits at your dining room table and I'll tell you who you love. Tell me who sits in your home, who's in your presence, who, who you have influence with, and I'll tell you who you truly love. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus demonstrates how we are to live. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the fill in the blank through the Beatitudes. Blessed means, what blessed is you are partaking in Christ and God's identity and characteristics when you do this. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek. And what do we do in return? I'm too good for them. Your dining room table demonstrates who you truly love. And Jesus demonstrates who he loves here. And then the third point, verses 10 through 12. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. Do you like how they do that? They didn't ask Jesus. They go to the disciples, hey, why does your teacher, and I'm sure that was a very sarcastic tone on teacher, eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus, wherever they were, I can't imagine they were too close because they didn't want to associate themselves with tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus, knowing all, says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Point number three, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Now, at that very beginning part, I want you to understand when people's identity 
or their idols are threatened, who they find themselves to be, or what they truly worship and what they chase after, and somebody comes along and challenges them or, or threatens their idol or threatens their identity. Remember, here we have the religious leader. Last week was the scribes. This week, the Pharisees. We'll meet the Sadducees in a little bit. They are the religious leaders. People go to them and ask questions, and they answer them with all the knowledge in the world. Now this guy, a carpenter, shows up. He knows the Bible like he wrote it. They keep trying to catch him in questions, and they'll ask him about heaven. Well, Jesus, in heaven, what do you think? This or this? And he's like, oh, no, 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 that's actually my home? I've spent eternity living there? I can actually tell you what it's like. Like, blasphemer! He continues to, they can't understand why he knows so much. The people who claim to know God best didn't recognize the Messiah when he was in front of them and having conversations with them and fulfilling prophecies in front of them. And that they took as a threat. Their popularity was threatened. Their occupation was threatened. Their finances were threatened. The way that people look up to them were threatened. And so what do threatened people do? They sow seeds of doubt. They sow seeds of complaining. They, they gossip. They, they backstab. They slander. They go after whatever it is that is attacking their idol or their identity. They go on a rampage of trying to get people to like them more than the person that seems to be threatening what it is that they truly, truly in their heart love. This is a theme you'll see through the rest of Matthew until they kill Jesus. Spoiler alert, Jesus wins. He rises again. So contrast this to last week to the scribes attacking Jesus for forgiveness their sins. Here we see the unbelievers. Unbelief in contrast with the belief of sinners. The sinners understood that they needed a savior. The religious leaders thought they themselves was what the goal to live up to was. Because if Jesus was right, the religious, that meant for the, the religious leaders that they would have to change everything that they worked for. If Jesus truly was able to forgive sins, that means that everything that they did to point out how good they were was not enough. Everything that they have built up, their, their popularity, if you will, their their privilege, everything that they've put such a huge emphasis on, if Jesus really is who he says he is, then all of that becomes worthless. Or as Paul the Pharisee would later call it, dung. You see, the Pharisees were willing to do outward appearances to look better. The bigger the crowd, the better outward appearance they could put on. You want sacrifices? Oh, I'm going to bring you sacrifices. They're going to be amazing. You want me to bring a tithe? Oh, I will bring tithes in bags. So big, it'll make your mind blow. Another, par another thing we see happening. The woman puts in two cents and they bring bags and they dump it. And Jesus says, yeah, she gave everything she had. You can afford that. 
They love to do stuff in front of people. They love to make sure they were appearing correct. They love to bring these sacrifices as long as there was people to watch it or people they could tell later about it. But mercy is different. Showing mercy or, or taking care of the least of these or promoting God's upside-down kingdom view of justice, it took someone willing to sacrifice themselves. They were willing to sacrifice what other people thought of them. They were willing to become, if you will, from Romans 12, a living sacrifice as they lived out God's holy and pleasing will, doing what God called them to do, not to impress other people. And they were willing to do this even when, or especially when, nobody was watching. They were willing to show mercy because that's what God has shown them, not because it's going to impress people. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. We see King David say this in Psalm 51 as he's repenting for, for the sins with Bathsheba and killing Uriah and all of these things and he's just repenting and he says, oh God, you desire mercy and not sacrifice. If I could bring a sacrifice big enough to cover it up, I would, but what you desire is a clean heart. What you desire is for me to live like you. So how do we apply this to our Lives. Well, I'm glad you asked because that's the last couple points of my message. The, f- the first point, I really, 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 if there's nothing else you take from tonight. Uh, in fact, I have been uh, just really tired. I don't know about you. This, I mean, and it's been months that I've just been really feeling it. And so I was actually going to take the whole month of October off from preaching I needed a break. My family needed a break. I don't know if you've known this, but there was a pandemic. Um, that wore people in ministry out. And then following a pandemic, uh, we've moved twice in the last five months. Uh, and then um, God has seen fit to allow my family to experience an unbelievable amount of sickness in the last four months. Uh, and so we are just tired. And so as we were laying out the preaching calendar for this uh, month, I just said, I really want to preach this one passage. Why? Because this passage always hits me in the heart because you have to understand the miracle of salvation that is done. Not just in Matthew, but in anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. When we humble ourselves to the point that... um, we understand who we really are, our sinful, horrific core, not the one that we can put on a show when we go to church or community group, but when we look in the mirror and it's just you and you, and you look into your eyes and you know the thoughts that you have and and you know your sinful nature and you fully understand that just any one sin will separate you from God for eternity and you look at yourself and you know the thoughts and know you the things that you do and the things that you think are in secret, you can start to understand what a miracle it is that an all-holy, all-knowing God sent his only perfect son to die on the cross for your sins. He took the punishment and he took your sins and he took him to the grave and he rose again because of how much he loved you. We can then start to understand the miracle of salvation. So do you see the miracle of salvation? Don't answer that, because you do every day. 
If you were born, let's say you were born without a leg, and you made it through life. I was talking to a friend who was born without an arm this last week, and, and she said, you just get used to it. Like, I just never really noticed it. I've never had an arm. Never had a right arm, so you just, I don't know, it's never been like, oh, I miss it. I've never had it. So let's say you were born without a leg, and you've gone through life, you go through high school, going through college, you know everybody notices, and then one day you meet a man. And he comes up to you and says, hey, you want a leg? And you're like, yeah, sure. And all of a boom, you have a perfectly healthy, normal leg. Would you ever tell anybody about it? You can answer that question. Would people notice a difference? When you walked home and all of a sudden your spouse goes, hey, did something different, a haircut or a leg? Like, did you get a leg? People would notice a difference. If you're like me, you would tell everybody, right? Like you'd be in a storm, be like, hey, uh, what kind of soup are you looking for? Because I just got a new leg. I know it doesn't really fit in with the story, but I got a leg. It's pretty amazing. If we had a miracle like that, and I love the story of the blind man because he is now able to see, and he's going around, he's dancing around, he can see for probably the first time in his life, and the people say, hey, what happened? He goes, I was blind, and now I see because of Jesus. And they're like, hey, you can't say that. He's like, no, 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 that's, that's really what happened. I was blind, and now I see because of Jesus. And his family's trying to get him to be quiet. Hey, we don't talk about Jesus around here. People will be offended. So the religious leaders go, hey, what happened? And he goes, I was blind, remember? You know me. I was blind, and now I see, and it's because of Jesus. And they're like, no, that can't be true. And he's like, please understand. I was blind, and now I see, and it was because of Jesus. And they're like, well, how did he do it? He's like, I don't know. I was blind. He said I could see, and now I see. That's all the theology I have on this. But what is our response? That's why I asked the question, do you see the miracle of salvation? Because what Jesus did in last week's passage is he's saying, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, hmm, interesting. And the scribes are like, hey, he can't do that. And he's like, and get up and walk. He gets up and walk, and they're like, whoa, that's amazing. He's like, you think that's amazing? I'm going to be punished for this man's sins and die for him and take his sins to the grave covering them with my blood, and then I'm going to defeat death so that all of you have a hope. Even the ones of you that doubt me now will have a hope of having your sins forgiven and being adopted into my family. They're like, boy, that leg stuff was cool. <laughs> and that's how we live, for being honest, our lives. Somebody's like, hey, I can't decide between tomato soup and chicken soup. And you're like, my sins are forgiven. Get them both. My sins are forgiven. Do we run around telling everyone? When someone says, boy, there's something different about you, you're like, I don't know why. We tell, yeah, because Jesus forgave my sins. I am not going to be separated for all eternity from the glory of God. I'm going to be with, basking in the brightness of the glory of God for eternity. Yeah, there's something different about me. How do we live? Do you see the miracle of salvation? That's why I say, uh, you know, we don't, this sounds really rough, but we don't really do, if you grew up at church, we don't really do altar calls, because my thing is, show me during the week. 
If you're committing your life to Jesus, it's going to look different tomorrow morning or Monday morning at work. It's going to be different in your circle of friends. If you're really committing to follow Christ, it's just going to be different through the course of your week, through your day. Do you see the miracle of salvation and does it play out in your life? Does it play out in the smallest business transactions? Does it play out anywhere that you live, learn, work, and play? People know there's something different because you're living like someone who had their sins punished for and forgiven by somebody else who is perfect and a creator and still alive. Number two, are you allowing an earthly identity to keep you from a heavenly calling? Are you allowing an earthly identity to keep you from a heavenly calling? I was supposed to start off tonight making sure everybody got this handout, and I'm really interrupting my message by doing it now. Did everybody get this? If you do not have this, uh, I'm going to go ahead and volunteer Jose and Greg and Scott. Do you mind? They should be in the back, or Shannon's up. Just make sure. If you don't have one, raise your hand. These handouts, we are going to ask you to go through these. Maybe we don't have them. Oh, Courtney has them? Oh, Courtney has them right up here. <laughs> Courtney. <laughs> She's feeling convicted. She's like, okay, fine, I'll give some up. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no. Courtney is running guest services this evening, if everyone's curious. I want you to take these. We're not going to go through them during the message. These are for you to go through in your community group. If you're not in a community group, please come and talk to us. I know we have guests with us. These are for you to go through in your home, with your spouse, roommate, uh, friendly neighbor, whatever you have. Walk through these questions with them. Um, it'll help you understand if you are allowing an earthly identity to keep you from a heavenly calling. You see, we can find our identity in so many things. Occupation, relationship status, uh, parental status, ethnicity, accomplishments, education, personality type, Enneagram number, health, etc. Whatever it is, we can find our identity in so many different things. And I'm stopping there because you have to do the rest. But I want to stop and focus on who God says you are in him. If you have made Jesus the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, this is true for you. If you have never made that decision and you are continuing to ask questions, please understand it is an invitation for you to come and call out on him and ask him to forgive you of your sins and to become the leader of your life. But when we have made that decision, when we are following Jesus, this is who, I'm just going to give you three passages, you can write them down, because I'm sure in your community groups, ten questions isn't enough for discussion. I'm sure you need a couple other things to go through. And so here's what I want you to do. Write down these three passages that you can walk through if you have time. Ephesians 1, we are told, and again, this should be highly encouraging to you if you are a follower in Christ. When you are trying to decide, am I following after an idol? Am I following because I find my identity so important wrapped up in this? This is what God promises you, and God does is not slack concerning his promises. In Ephesians 1, we are told that we are chosen. We are loved we are adopted. I, I'm going to stop there for a second. I love the picture of what you just saw earlier this evening. What a beautiful, beautiful picture, and I hope you understand that. 
uh, yesterday, Tab went down to the courthouse to see the adoption finalized, and uh, I stayed uh, back with the boys, and I was talking to my oldest, and I said, um, he's, uh, Tab was sending me pictures, and I was showing him, and because they're such good friends, and he goes, well, I don't understand, and I said, well, you know, she doesn't have a mommy and daddy, and his face just dropped. You know, the face of a five-year-old just, like, became so sad. I didn't intend that, but then I said, so they're here because now Joey and Caitlin are going to be their mo- her mommy and daddy. And his face just lit up. He goes, really? And I said, yeah. I got tears in my eyes. That's who we are in God. We are wanderers trying to find answers, trying to find something that we just doesn't seem to exist. But that's how God welcomes us in. We are adopted. We are redeemed. We are forgiven by a God so we can be viewed by our creator and judge as holy and blameless. If you go to the next chapter, Ephesians 2, it tells us that we are alive. We are saved. We are raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And the passage that we went through a lot this summer, 1 Peter chapter 2, says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, part of a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's your identity in Christ. David Platt, in his book, he writes, Jesus has offered us a new identity, his identity. No longer separated from God, but now united with God. No longer stained by sin, but now clean from sin. No longer slaves, but now free. No longer guilty before God as judge, but now loved by God as father. No longer deserving eternal death. Never to grasp all that God created us to be, but now having eternal life, experiencing more and more exactly who God has created us to be. We spend so much time searching for our identity. And God is just giving us more than we could ever think or imagine. Number three. Jesus is the doctor we need. Jesus is the doctor we need. Imagine if you came up to me and you're like, hey, I am not feeling well, Rob. I don't feel good at all. Do you have any recommendations for a doctor? I was like, oh, yeah, I got two. One guy is so good. I mean, he can figure out what's wrong with you like no other. Uh, He will be able to, it's just amazing how fast he works, some of the tests that he does, and he'll be able to tell you exactly what's wrong with you. Um, But he's terrible at actually helping you. Uh, he'll never actually give you what you need. Um, he's not going to actually help you get better, but he'll tell you what's wrong with you. He's fantastic at it. But there's no way that he can, like, he's just, he can't fix you. But then I got this other doctor, and all you do is you, you just um, ask him for help, and he heals you. But he's not, like, he doesn't spend a lot of time going into all the details. So which doctor do you want to go to? So often we... F- We run to earthly advice that the promise is just trying to fit into the earth better. Instead of seeking a heavenly answer from the creator 
all-knowing, all-powerful God. And so the choice is yours. Jesus is the doctor that we need. Jesus is the answer. So where do you go for help? What do you seek after? Do you seek after godly, heavenly wisdom, or do you chase after earthly advice and you try to make the earthly advice happy? Jesus is the doctor we need. And number four, are you quick to judge or quick to show mercy? Are you quick to judge or quick to show mercy? The last, couple, the last summer as we were going over um, the topic of the gospel, how the gospel transforms us. And I just started asking, some of you were there, we had this discussion, but I started saying, hey, how were you raised? How did your parents raise you? And how do you view God? Uh, how are you raising your kids now in light of how God has brought you under his wing? As God has adopted you into his family and what he's promised you, are you raising your children more like your parents did? Are you trying to raise your parents the opposite of what your parents did because you hated it so much? Or are you looking to God and trying to raise them and treat them as God treats you on a daily basis? And what I found in my own life is how I treat my children is a lot of how I find the gospel. And it's tough when you start asking those types of questions. God is very merciful. Rob, not so much. God is incredibly gracious. Rob struggles with that a lot. God sees our hearts and our needs. I tend to judge pretty harshly. And so for you, as you look at how you raise your children or how you treat other people on the road, in stores, in restaurants, the servers, the baristas, how are you demonstrating how God treats you? God knows the very hair on your head. Do you bother to learn people's names? Are you quick to judge or are you quick to show mercy? Micah 6.8, God says through his prophet, Micah, he says, he has shown you, O mortal, and I love how the NIV uses this, O mortal, it's to remind you who you are and who God is. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? When we see words like require of you or command you, there are no loopholes, there are no exceptions, it is pretty cut and dry. He says, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. These three go in unison together. This is God's justice. If you want to learn about God's just, justice, do a deep dive into the book of Psalms and what David calls God's justice as compared to what man calls justice. They go hand in hand because when we walk humbly aware of who God is and aware of who we are, it changes how we treat other people. It changes how we show mercy. It changes how we judge others. So I'll finish with this last question. Are you living to please people with outward actions 
or are you living to please God with a humble and clean heart? Are you living to please people with outward actions or are you living to please God with a clean and humble heart? Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come to your word. As James calls it, like a mirror, that we can look into it. That you, through your Holy Spirit, will point out to us what needs to change. And that it's not up to us, but you do the changing. We are so helpless in our own power. We, we become exhausted and worn out trying to change in our own power. We try to change just to please the people around us and look right. It is exhausting. But in you we can find rest. Because of your power, you love to demonstrate your power by changing sinners more into your image. So Lord, our prayer is that as we spend time in your word, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would change us for your glory, not for our own. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this evening who has never called out to you, who's never made you their forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life, Lord, our prayer is that tonight that they would call out to you. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts and their lives right now to call them to yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength to come and ask us for questions or ask us for help or to tell us what they made that decision doing. But Lord, I also pray for us that do know you, that have that relationship with you. Lord, I pray that our lives would not look like the Pharisees, but Lord, that we would live to look like you. That we would love the people that you put in our life as you love the tax collectors and sinners. Because Lord, we are all sinners desperately in need of your grace and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't leave here unchanged, but that we would leave here being challenged because of your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.